The scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through me to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so... What do you think is the largest and fastest growing religion uh, in the United States today? A couple years ago, uh, there was a study done by the University of North Carolina, uh, and this was their sociology department, and what they set out to do was survey and interview, and I don't know exactly how they conducted their uh, test, but they survey and interviewed uh, the youth of America. And they wanted to hear, what are your religious beliefs? What do you value? What do you hold dear? Who do you think God is? How do you think God works and creates with the, or interacts with the world that he created? And uh, after a very extensive study, they ended up producing uh, this, this theory, I guess. They, they named it Moral Therapeutic Deism. The study was done back in 2005. And it said the largest and then, frankly, the most held-to religion in the United States was not Christianity or Islam or even atheism, but it was moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, it actually, in some ways, has a creed. Just as we have a creed and something that we would hold to, so too does uh, this belief that in 2005 represented the majority of the youth uh, in the United States. Here's five points of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I think we could all agree on that. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible by most world religions. I might phrase it a little differently, but I don't have a problem with that. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I would have a lot of caveats. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And we're sliding down the hill. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This study was done in 2005, and I was just beginning my undergraduate career back then. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound right. At least that doesn't seem to me to kind of match up with my own experience of the world. But then I have to say, when I got involved in youth ministry after I graduated, I began to see this view coming up again and again and again. When my family and I moved to Columbus, uh, I was the youth pastor at a church, and I had only been there for about two weeks when I did my first summer camp. And we went with this other church, and we went down to Florida. And summer camp, if you've ever had the privilege of being a part of it, usually it is a very holy week, and it's a, it's a really beautiful time. Well, at this particular summer camp, uh, at the very last night, it was programmed in that there would be this time of testimony, this time where the students were able to share and speak about what God had done in their hearts and lives and what they were learning and what they were repenting of, and it was supposed to be this beautiful thing, except for it wasn't. Because moral therapeutic deism was the creed that was celebrated that evening. And what I mean by that, there was a lot of emotions. Kids got really excited about the experience of camp. There were lots of feelings shared with one another. There was lots of camaraderie between students. It was a very emotional evening. But I took note, God was not mentioned. Jesus was not mentioned. Sin was not mentioned. Following the Lord in any way, shape, or form was not mentioned. And I couldn't help but think, what were we doing here for a week? Why would, you know, did the students not absorb? Did they not take in any of the teaching? And when we got back home, I talked with my own students about it. And then I actually talked with the other youth pastor about it to try to learn from this experience. And one of the things that I, I began to see, and I think it's prevalent in our culture today, and before we say, oh, culture is the only one guilty, sometimes in our churches today, people want to approach God on their own terms. You see, that was the thing. Uh, the youth, they had this great experience, and whether God actually had anything to do with that experience or not, uh, let's slap the label, the label spirituality onto it, and it must be a good thing, right? And I think we can see that throughout Scripture. God will say, this is important to me. Worship me in this way. And then very quickly, the people say, nope, we're going to worship you the way that we want to worship you with consequences. God will say, this is important to me. I want you to follow me this way. And then people will say, nope, uh, you must have been mistaken. That can't be that big of a deal, right? We want to follow you the way that we want to follow you. And if it feels good and right, it has to be good and right, correct? This is a struggle that I believe is common to man. We want to come to God in our own terms. But when we read Exodus 19, 
This is a significant point in the history of Scripture, in the history of redemption. This is the first time where God calls a people into relationship with Him. Very significant text we're going to unpack here in a minute. I believe that we learn this. God wants His people, God wants His people to respond to His call. He invites His people to respond to His call. And so this evening, we're going to be talking about the call of God, the call of God that He's placed on all of our hearts and all of our lives. And we're going to learn a few things. We're going to see that God initiates His call. We're going to see that God dictates His call. And God empowers us to obey His call. He initiates it, He dictates it, and He empowers us to obey His call. Those are going to be the three points we're going to look at this evening. So this first point, God initiates His call. Uh, I know many of us were present uh, at the class on Thursday evening, but in this class on Thursday evening, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, and we talked a lot about the law of God uh, and how He relates to us. Now, as I'm opening up this sermon here, I cannot emphasize the truth of this first point enough. In fact, I think having a correct view of God, having a correct view of Scripture, having a correct view of redemption and our need for grace, all of it, in some way, shape, or form, is dependent upon the truth in this first point. God initiates His call. Why do I emphasize this and why do I bring this up? Because as we looked at Thursday, so many churches uh, teach this idea that if we are good enough, if we are moral enough, if we behave enough, God will love us. God will accept us. God will say that we are good if we are good. But that is not the biblical story. And maybe if there are churches out there that aren't quite as skewed as that, there are still plenty out there that would say, okay, well, uh, the God in the Old Testament was a God of works-based religion. If you obeyed Him, He would redeem you. If you obeyed Him, you could have justification. But Jesus came and gave us grace. But that's not what we see. That's not what we see right here in Exodus chapter 19. A couple points that we can see. First off, in verses 1 through 3. We're told that the Israelites have been on a three-month-long journey. So we know that preceding this journey, God saved them. We're going to talk more about that when we look at verse 4. But for these three months, we, the last sermon we had on Exodus was Exodus 15, I believe. So we've skipped over some ground. But for the last three months, God has been leading His people. He's been providing for His people both food and water. He's been leading them with a cloud of fire by night, excuse me, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. He's been providing for them. And then what is happening here in Exodus 19, uh, biblical scholars, they look at this and they realize, ah, this is the beginning of a covenant relationship where a greater sovereign enters into a relationship with a lesser sovereign. Well, the first thing that occurs uh, when a covenant is made, especially back in ancient times, is the greater sovereign will recount the history that he has with the people he's entering into relationship with. And so we read verse 4, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself.'" The whole Exodus story 
Everything that we've read at this point has been a matter of God's sheer grace. He heard his people's cries and groanings. He remembered that he called Abraham. He remembered that he made a promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his family, that they would be a blessing to all of the world. And God comes into the story and rescues his people. He redeems his people. They did nothing to merit this. They did nothing to earn this. God was gracious to them. God initiated relationship with them. The whole story of Scripture, going back to Genesis and ending in Revelation, is one of God initiating relationship with His people. Here in Exodus chapter 19, very specifically, God is the one who has led them to Sinai, and at Sinai, He initiates giving His call to his covenant people. I think there's a lot of us at different times and in different ways, and I'm looking at everybody in the room, and I don't, I don't know what kind of, you know, angry prayers maybe we've ever given to God in our lives, but I know that there have been times in my own life, times of great doubt, times of great struggle, uh, where I've essentially said, God, if you would just prove yourself to me, if you would just show up, you know, then it would be so much easier for me to really, really believe in you, to trust in you, to follow you, whatever that's going to look like. And I think when we, when we think about this idea that God initiates relationship, God initiates his call with all of us, I guess what I would say is to those of us who have ever struggled with doubt, to, to those of us who have ever needed God to do more, why do we need God to do more? Can we look at what God has already done? God has given us stories that we may believe. He's given us the incredible story of Exodus where he showed up and overthrew the most powerful nation in the world at that time and took a nation of people. Look at all the foreign nations, by the way, that existed at some time in the ancient Near East. They're not around anymore, at least, at least not directly. The Syrians, we could keep going on the whole list of the people that uh, pursued, but even though there's um, generations of them, obviously, that, that, that still exist, the Jewish people are still around. They still occupy the land of Canaan. God has proven himself. God has shown up. He has given us stories. He initiates relationship with us. And as far as proof, as far as evidence, as far as the things that at times our heart needs, that we may be able to follow him, he has given us stories. He has shown up. The first thing that we need to know and that we see here in Exodus 19 is that God initiates his call. But then the second thing we see is that God dictates his call. What do I mean by that? Verse 5 now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Beginning of verse 5, one more time. Now, therefore, if. Now, therefore, if. So, uh, I bring this up 
because in our denomination, uh, one of the views that we hold to, and very rightfully and biblically so, uh, is this idea of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of man, the sovereignty of God and over all of our lives. Yes, absolutely. But we also must see, if we cooperate with Scripture, that God does give us choice. He does give us the option to respond to Him. Verses 5 and 6, if you will indeed obey my voice and, and follow my covenant and pledge yourself to me, you will be to me a treasured possession. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. What I'm getting at here is God sets the stipulations. When Amy and I entered into a marriage covenant, a marriage relationship, I knew that she and I were going in and we were going to be a partnership of equals. We're going to make decisions together. There were going to be times where I had to lean on her. There were going to be times she had to lean on me. And while there are mm, some comparisons we can make to a marriage covenant and what God is doing here, it still is not the same. This is not a relationship between equals. This is a relationship between God, who is sovereign over all. All the earth is mine, who is entering into a relationship with people who have not earned it, who have not merited it in any way, shape, or form, and he is saying, here's the deal. Here's how this relationship is going to go. Here's what it looks like for you to worship me. Here's what it looks like for you to follow me. If you say that you are mine, here's what it looks like by the way that you will relate to one another and to the greater world around you. I'm telling you, here's what relationship looks like. God dictates his call. And then we didn't read it, but we see the people, they respond. Verse 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We looked at it, and we read the words of other pastors that talked about uh, how the people of God, Israel, they were coerced into this relationship. In some ways, it was almost as if they were kicking and screaming, and they didn't want to have this relationship with Yahweh. But that's not what we see here. I do believe, and, you know, it is speculation because they didn't, but they had an option at this point. They could have rejected the covenant that was being offered them, but we read it right there in verse 8. We agree. We want this. We want this relationship. God dictates what a relationship with Him looks like. He tells us we don't get to negotiate. We don't get to uh, come up with our own terms. We are called to either essentially take it or leave it. I wish I would have saved the Charlie illustration, but I already used it like a month ago. So uh, another illustration very similar to this. Uh, I'm a very, very stubborn person. And um, just being honest, and she would tell it to you right now, Amy's a very, very stubborn person. And we're starting to notice that our daughter is becoming a very, very stubborn person. Uh, it runs in the family. And so the other day, uh, we're trying to give Charlie more and more responsibility as we're trying to raise her to be, you know, uh, a good adult one day. Uh, Amy's trying to get Charlie to do some chores. And Charlie is just trying to do anything in the world but what she is being asked to do. Uh, she's trying to keep playing. She's trying to go brush the dogs, everything but pick up the toys that uh, we're asking her to do in this moment. And Amy starts laughing. 
And I go, what are you laughing about? Because at this point, I'm starting to get frustrated. And uh, she goes, I'm laughing because, you know, this is God showing me patience because this is exactly what I used to do to my own parents. And we said, when I was a kid, uh, I tried to get out of whatever my mom asked me to do so much. Specifically, she has this story about kitty litter. When she was a child, it was her job to change the kitty litter. And she said it was an ongoing battle between her and her mother until finally one day it went something like this. Her mother says, Amy, you need to go change the litter. And Amy goes, ah, how about I do it tomorrow? And her mom goes, no, you know, we're not negotiating about this. You need to go change the litter. And Amy goes, okay, I'll do it later in the day, maybe after naps. She goes, no, no, we're not negotiating. I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm telling you, go do it right now. And Amy said, okay, well, I'm going to just do this first, then I'll do it. And her mom said, stop it. You don't have a voice in this matter. I'm telling you, you need to go do this. And in some way, shape, or form, although that sounds a little militaristic, and that sounds maybe, you know, not as lighthearted as I would like it to be, so too, it's this way with God. And I bring that up because whether it's uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, whether it's the postmodern culture, well, really, we value, I believe today, feeling more than anything else in the world. I think we kind of do this to God too, don't we? God says, here's what a relationship with me looks like. Here's what I care about. Here's what's important to me. Here's what I value. And I think we're constantly negotiating with him. God, I'm only going to worship with you this way. Going to church, it doesn't matter that much, does it? God, uh, I want to do what I want to do with my friends. I want to do what I want to do with my family. I want to do what I want to do. I think we're constantly negotiating with God as if we have a voice in the matter, as if we can tell God that at times He is wrong. And so I ask you, what ways do you negotiate with God? I got to say, even though this sounds a little strict and maybe even, you know, a little bit like, oh, you know, so it's God's way or the highway, I got to say for me, in some way, shape, or form, I actually find it incredibly relieving. Why do I find it incredibly relieving? There's something about my personality that I actually think, especially if I'm trying to get something, uh, at the worst, you know, me at my worst, and please, I try to fight against this, right? And, you know, I'm prepping you for it. But at the, the worst side of me, I can be a manipulative person. The worst side of me, I can be really persuasive. And I feel like I know what I need to say at people uh, at such a way and at such a time in order for me to get what I want. I feel like, you know, I can do that. Well, for me, when I hear that God is the one that dictates relationship, it's incredibly relieving because I don't need to put up any pretense. I can go to him broken and flawed as I am, and I don't need to try to trick him. I don't need to try to persuade him uh, that my way is right and that if he could just see it from my point of view, things will be… I don't need to do those things. God has called me to trust him. God has called me to obey him. And so too for us. Sure, it can seem like a challenge that there is somebody else who is truly in control over all the earth. Remember, all the earth is mine. But actually, I think if we really look at this with how much we have to work in our world, with how hard we have to try in relationships with one another, with relationships at work, isn't it freeing to know that there's at least one relationship where we don't need to try?
where there's at least one relationship that we could simply trust and we can obey. God dictates His call to us. And finally, God empowers obedience to His call. So if you've been paying attention, you've noticed I've been talking a lot about uh, the call that God places on His people, but I haven't completely defined, well, what is He actually calling His people to? Let's get into that. Uh, God gives us the power to be obedient to His call. So I think we see the call of God right here in verses 5 and 6. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God is calling them to two things. He's calling them to deep and intimate relationship with Him. You shall be to me a treasured possession. It's this Hebrew word, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right or not, uh, segula, this treasured possession. And we see it elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, where it's the crown jewel uh, that a king would have on his crown. It's of significant worth. It's of nearly infinite value if we're trying to put a, you know, a money label on it. God is saying, I'm calling you to this. Uh, not only, yes, do I have expectations of you, of course I do, but do you see the unconditional love I want to pour out on you? Do you see the value that I'm going to pour out on you to that last point? We have to fight for our value in every relationship, do we not? That's not what God is saying here. I am going to name you. I am going to call you beloved. I am going to say you are my treasured possession. And along with that, I'm going to call you to mission with me. You're going to be, uh, to the rest of my creation, a kingdom of priests. Because we know, at least in the Old Testament, what's the job of a priest? We've talked about it before, but the job of a priest is to mediate the presence of God to the people. He hears the people. He prays for the people. He performs sacrifices on behalf of the people that they may be forgiven. God is not only inviting them to know their incredible worth and incredible value and incredible relationship, but He's calling them into an incredible story. Everything that you do, it's going to be ultimately about me and showing the world who I am, and this is the mission that I am calling you to. And I think there's a few things that we learn about God in the mission that He's calling His people to in this text he wants his people to know him. That's why he speaks through a mediator. That's why he speaks through Moses. More about that in a second. He also wants his people to be present with him. Now, I didn't read verses uh, 8 through 15, but in response, in verse 8, again, the people get these conditions. If you will indeed obey my covenant, my vo all those things, right? The people all agree. They all respond. Yes, God, we want in. We want to obey you. We want to follow you. And then God gives further instructions to Moses. He says, okay, I want to meet with the people face to face. Uh, I'm going to give them the Ten Commandments. But here's the thing. We see that, you know, I said it earlier, but essentially the great struggle between God and man. The Old Testament describes it a number of different ways. We could talk about clean and unclean, and I'm being very general as I'm uh, summarizing this. We could talk about holy and unholy, but there's this great burden, there's this great obstacle that separates God and man, and that is the fact that we are sinful. 
And for us, sinful as we are, to be in the presence of a holy God means certain doom, certain destruction, yet we see that God wants His people to know Him. We see that God wants to be present with His people, and so He provides a way. He says, purify yourselves. For three days, that's all I want you to do. You're not going to have relationship with one another. You're not going to talk. You're not going to play games. You're not going to do all these things. I want you to drop everything else in your world, in your life, and I want you to purify yourselves. Because as I'm inviting you into relationship with me, you are about to encounter the holy God in a way that you never have before. And it's going to rock your world. It's going to change your life. And then we see that's exactly what the people do. For three days, they prepare themselves. Go through ritualistic cleansings. Uh, I can imagine based on the rest of the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were made. Uh, there was washings that they would have done. There would have been uh, an incredible devotion to this for three days. I keep bringing this up because I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if I could do any one thing for more than 15 minutes. And what do I mean by that? Even like something as simple as oh, watching a TV show, you know, I'll watch a TV show, but then I'm checking my email or I'm checking Facebook. Um, if I'm in the office and I'm studying, maybe 15 minutes I'll read and then I'll stand up and stretch or check my email or Facebook. Uh, I could keep going on, right? But I think we're a very distracted people. There's some good to that, some bad to that. Yeah, that, but that's not the point of the sermon. I'm just saying, three days, three days, no distractions, three days, their heart, mind, body are dedicated to cleansing themselves, to purifying themselves, to preparing themselves to have an encounter with the holy God. And finally, the trumpet blows. And you can imagine the expectation. You can imagine the, the excitement, the anxiety, the, the buildup. I'm going to be face to face with God. And as the people begin to walk, uh, there's, you know, some scholars say the closest thing that we can imagine would have been something similar to a volcano eruption. Uh, there is a torrent of flame and fire. There's loud thunder. There's wind blowing. Uh, and they know God is on Mount Sinai. And they begin to march. But just as they hit the foot of the mountain, God says, stop. Moses, come up here. I need to talk to you again. And Moses comes up, and God and Moses have another conversation. God is the one who has been saying, purify yourselves that you may be able to uh, encounter me. And after three days of the people purifying themselves, there's nothing in the text that would have us believe that, you know, they didn't do what they were commanded to do or their hearts weren't in it. God says, stop. They can't come any closer. If they come any closer, I will break out against them. Not even the priests can come up next to me. Don't you see? For three days, the people did everything in their power to cleanse themselves, that they may be able to enter into the presence of a holy God. But it wasn't enough. They were not pure enough. They were not clean enough. They could not enter. Three days of complete devotion. There would have been fasting, sacrifices, washings. Again, everything that they would have done, they gave it their all, and they couldn't enter even on the foot of the mountain, lest the holiness of God break out with them. And I think that shows us the third thing, the third part of the nature of God and 
probably the most incredible and most important part. You see, God still wants His people to know Him. God still wants to be present with His people. So God provides Jesus, and Jesus provides God. For three days, the people couldn't purify themselves enough to be able to go to the presence of God. Yet after just three hours on the cross, Jesus utters the words, It is finished. For three days, the people cannot make themselves worthy enough to be able to go before God the Father. Yet for three days, Jesus laid in the tomb dead and then rose from the dead. And as he raises from the dead, uh, eventually he ascends to the right hand of his Father. And his Father, we are told in Scripture, is very pleased with him. And his Father says, anything that you ask, I will give. And because of the work of Jesus, Jesus asks and God gives. He gives another gift. He gives the gift of the Spirit. And then we read in the book of Acts, it's almost the setting of Sinai yet again. God shows up in powerful noise. God shows up in fire. But the experience is completely different. You see, when we keep reading, when we go into chapter 20, God utters the Ten Commandments to the people. They're at the foot of the mountain. They're at great distance from God, and they hear His utterings, and they hear the Ten Commandments, and what is their response? Moses, please never again. We cannot handle the voice of God. They're terrified. They're trembling. Uh, They don't want the presence of God because they are so unholy. They are so unclean. Compare that to Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. At Sinai, God shows up in fire and fury and and the people are terrified, and they say, speak no more. At Pentecost, God shows up in much the same way, in fire, and because the people have been cleansed, now the presence of God is no longer a terrifying thing, but something that causes the people to rejoice. We could keep going on and reading in Acts 2, Peter will preach a sermon and people in many, uh, many nations and people in many tongues are all going to understand, and God is going to, un- to add to their number. And then we can read uh, chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending worship together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If relationship was dependent upon us purifying ourselves uh, by following the Ten Commandments, then we know we're without hope. 
but that is the work that Jesus has done on the cross for the ways that we have rebelled against God, who is mighty, who He is powerful. Jesus does cleanse us. He does purify us. But the story doesn't just end with the death of Christ. He rose again, and He's given us the Holy Spirit. He has changed our hearts of stone, and He's given us a heart of flesh. And He's given us the presence of God Himself, that today you and I may be able to follow Him on mission. Mission of entering into a deep and loving personal relationship with Him that is like unlike any other relationship we can ever have, and mission with Him to be a part of His redemption of all things. Your relationship with God matters. It matters to Him. It matters to Him so much that He gave His Son that you may know that you are a treasured possession. Your relationship with God matters. It matters so much because there are people in our own schools and workplaces and city who do not know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who are fighting as hard as they can to make a name for themselves, who are trying to find value anywhere they can whether it's in sex or whether it's in relationships or whether it's in work achievements. And God empowers you to show them who He is. God has called us, and He invites us to respond to His call. We have obstacles and we have things that we put in the way. God, if only you would do this. God, if only I can do that. May we reject those things and trust and obey Him And may we know that He has given us the power to be obedient to Him. How will you respond to His call? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Scripture. We thank You for Your story. We thank you that in your law, in the Ten Commandments, you show us everything that you want from us, everything you desire for us, everything that we should know about you, and everything that you want us to do. But Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that at the cross, all the things that we could not do, all the ways that we could not satisfy your law, Lord, you did. You obeyed perfectly. And then you died that we may be purified and we may be cleansed. God, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, the the gift of the Spirit, that we may follow you in the mission that you have given all of your people throughout all time. God, help us to know the value that you have placed on us. And God, help us to respond to the call and the value that you give us by helping us to be obedient to you as we follow you. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things.